um, let's talk about war. And um, I, don't, I, I don't know if I need to again, but uh, those of you that was here the last two nights, all of this is coming out of the whole idea of protection of human life and um, the, the sixth commandment of you shall not murder and um, Exodus 20, 13 and defining that that word there, um, murder means to slay. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't disqualify any kind of position in which somebody may have to be in in which somebody may get killed or may have to get killed if it's uh, from the standpoint of self-defense or if it's from the position of capital punishment. So in this one, though, we're going to deal with the issues of war. How do we know if a war is a just war? And the position of Christians serving as soldiers. Uh, I want to deal a little bit with pacifists. There are, there are, there's a large group of Christians. I say large. Um, maybe that may not be quite right. But there, there are uh, noted Christians that are pacifists uh, that don't believe that there should be, that we should have any kind of uh, activity of war at all, and certainly Christians shouldn't be part of it. And then, I, because of what's going, what's always going on in the news, I'll talk a little bit about nuclear weapons. I'll talk about women in combat. I'll, I'll just, I'll just hit those things, and and uh, and you'll just they'll land where they land, and you'll take it where you take it. And um, when it's all said and done, we'll all see Jesus. So, let me give you a quote from Charles Hodge, which I just think is so. Uh, appropriate. This, this was his statement. It is conceded that war is one of the most dreadful evils that can be inflicted on a people. That it involves the destruction of property and life. That it demoralizes both the victors and the vanquished. And that it visits thousands of non-combatants with all the miseries of poverty, widowhood, and orphanage. And it tends to arrest the progress of society in everything that is good and desirable. It is conceded that wars undertaken to gratify the ambition, cupidity, or resentment of rulers or people are unchristian and wicked. It is also conceded that the vast majority of the wars which we have uh, desolated the world have been unjustifiable in the sight of God and man. Nevertheless, it does not follow from this that war in all cases is to be condemned. I think that's probably one of the best quotes that really put out there how bad war is. How many of you here have, obviously, how many of you first here have served our country in some capacity or another? Awesome. We love you and thank you for it. How many of you have actually been in war? been in combat okay you can just you can just and thank god you're here god bless you you can i'm sure any of you that know people that have been in combat you can just talk to them and hear the stories and um you can you can just get a sense of of the 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 what would i say the emotion and the mindset that those who've been in war and have survived still carry I, I, do, I do believe that there's, there's a real legitimacy to the whole issue of, of PTSD for those that have been uh, in war and obviously with, like all things, things that we pray for and hope, to, hope people can, you know, work through by the grace, uh, grace of God. But it's, 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 it's tragic. And um, some movies, I think, do a really good job of, of showing it. But uh, it's nothing like nothing like being in it for those that have been in it and, and survived through it. And so even with that, though, uh, we know even scripturally that there are occasions, some of the things that we'll talk about tomorrow night that, that some of you have read through is occasions where God has given instructions for war to be under, undertaken. Uh, without question, it, it, it's just like it's the primary duty of someone to protect their home. And many of, many of us, depends on what kind of um, maybe neighborhood you're in, there's, you know, um, uh, uh, they don't call them adopt the blocks, block, block watch or something of that nature. What, what, yeah, where you protect, yeah, neighborhood watch, 
where you take a sense of, of your neighborhood. We have peace officers who are protecting our community. I do believe, uh, and I believe it's scripture, that it's the responsibility of the administration, the government, uh, who has the dual, du du duly has the power to protect its citizens and to um, restrict or re re refrain those who may bring forth evil. Now, without going back into those verses, and that would be on your notes, again, that's found in Romans 13, one through four, actually goes on through one through seven, and then also 1 Peter uh, 2.14. There are times, I think, when war is necessary to stop an evil aggressor. I think everybody here, um, well, maybe not, so I'll say it this way, there's a, there's a story in the, in the, in the Bible um, that is about a nation of Israel and another nation, another group of people called the Philistines. And you'll find that in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines had someone who was kind of a superstar for them by the name of Goliath. He was a big guy, giant, had four or five brothers, and they were coming to attack the nation of Israel. And as the armies was preparing out of fright, um, Saul, for some reason or other, who was a king of Israel at the time, king of the nation, just kept resisting to go against uh, the nation, the, the Philistines, and particularly the giant. A lot of it, we believe, from scripture was out of fear. But a young man by the name of David came along who was going to be king and saw that it was absolutely right to respond to this man, not to allow him to attack the nation and not allow the people to be killed because that will lead to any kind of, uh, which we see it through uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament. If you take out the leadership, take out the armies, take out the nation, then you control the people. Um, I think a clear example of that, and we'll deal with that a little bit later, is the invasion that Hitler done in Europe. Uh, he, th there was nothing that was gonna stop Hitler except a confrontation. The dude would have just kept going uh, as far as he can go. And actually, I think he had almost went as far as he can go when he started hitting United Kingdom. Yeah. And so, so, there, so a, a nation has a responsibility to uh, protect its citizens. Now, I want to read a quote from you on how we can um, know when a war is justified. And I'll, I'll break this down with some points, and that might be when I pass this out. But... I want you to hear this. The just war, just war ethic argues that warfare is sometimes necessary in order to resist or to reverse specific unjust actions taken by one government or a nation against another. But it also insists that war is always regrettable, is always something to avoid if possible, and is never to be used to establish some new vision of a social order. Now that's important to note because uh, uh, war should never um, be used to establish some, and, and I'll talk a lot about, about uh, contemporary stuff. For example, when I think the Soviet Union started moving into Ukraine, it was just to satisfy their agenda that they wanted more land. That would not be a justifiable war. Now, there may be more to the background of the politics of that um, than I know, but it certainly was one nation who did not want to be invaded by another nation, but another nation had a plan that that's what they wanted to do. So it's never to, to establish that. You always try, I think, you know, we, we hear it all the time, and I hope it's right. You always try diplomacy first, uh, but we learn that on the school ground. I think, you know, you, you don't, don't need to just jump into a fight if you can walk away and still be the hero and never have to throw a blow. I'm going to tell you this. One of the greatest miracles that happened under the eyes of a lot of us in the, in the mid-90s was South Africa going from apartheid to changing the rulership uh, to the ANC without blood being shed. That was an absolute miracle with all of the tensions and stuff that was going on. No one would have ever thought that that would have transitioned the way that it did. Um, and um, the, 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 the real issue here is um, we, you always want to try to find a way, any leadership should always want to try to find a way to, to avoid that. Now, 
scripturally, uh, we'll look at a, a few verses here, and, and um, some of these you might just want to want to note. Um, God does not allow uh, nations just to simply take over other nations. You can turn to Deuteronomy two, Deuteronomy two nine. He just doesn't let uh, his plan wasn't for folks just to take over nations uh, at will. Uh, let me see which verse here. Yeah. Um, we can read, I guess to stay in context, we'll, we'll read 2.8, Deuteronomy 2.8. And it reads as this, so we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath and uh, Ezion Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession because I've given our to the people of Lot for possession. And so, and there's a similar passage um, down in verse number 19 where he told them not to just take Ammon. He said also I'd given, given that to, to Lot, to the family of Lot. So it wasn't, you know, the, the Lord didn't just let folks take over nations at will and that should be a principle. I think that's, that's uh, among our land. Leaders shouldn't just think that they can take uh, a nation just because they want to. That's, that's no justifying in that. Same with, uh, turn if you would to Psalm 82, 82.4. There's a passage here that, um, that I think again speaks, and we, we dealt with this I think the first night, and, and I use this I think in the context of depending on when some of you um, were in war, but one of the first, um, I think it was 91, was the, the first war down in the desert, uh, desert storm, was that 91? And uh, some of you know, I hope I got the nation right, it was the United States going to help the nation of Yemen. I think uh, Saddam Hussein was moving into Kuwait, sorry, thank you, Kuwait. And... Um, and so there's a biblical precedence. You know, sometimes people may think, well, that's not, that don't have anything to do with us. Why should we worry about it? It just depends. And I know, again, there's a lot of political stuff that may go on with it, but the principle is right. Um, 82, let me read 82.4, rescue the weak and, and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Um, there's a principle, even again, going back to self-defense, that... Uh, those that have the ability to protect those that are weak and needy, I think have a moral responsibility to do so. Um, we, we should know that in all arenas of, of, of justice. And so I think also biblically we see some of the same things happen. Uh, I don't, uh, this, this won't be in your notes, I don't think, but you see in, 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 uh, in Obadiah also where the Lord brought a judgment upon Edom because they didn't go help uh, Israel. And, and so God brought a judgment against them. So I think there's times when that also can be justified. And again, um, there's, there's principles I think that needs to be looked at. Um, the next thing I wanted to bring out before I um, pass out the notes is that obviously we always try to seek other means. We, we don't pass up the scriptures that say, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, for th they shall be called the sons of God or as much as possible, as far as it lies within you to do everything you can to live peaceably with all men. So I think all of those things are, are principles that should always be looked uh, in all occasions. Now, what I want to do um, now, and I'm just, I'm just going to ask you not to try to read too much ahead. I know it's, that's like asking you not to walk on the grass, but... Uh, but, I, but there's so much now that I want to go over that's actually line, 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 line that uh, it would be better if you could read it. And again, there's a floating mic, so if there's any time you want to ask, ask a question, feel free to do so. But I want to break down principles of that's kind of accepted. Now, this, this list that you're going to see, and you're going to be on page two when you get it under D, this list was written by a guy um, that was at 
Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Now he, he worked for the White House at the, at the time when he wrote this. He works for South, Southeastern now. Uh, he's not the creator of this list, uh, but, but that's where I drew the list from. And, uh, but I liked his commentary with each one. And so I've kind of just uh, got the main point, got the main line, and, and I think there is some real good principles here to look at. Now again, we're talking about Christian ethics, so uh, everything's not gonna be line for line as we would read it uh, in the scripture, but I think there's enough biblical support to these things that I think it's wise to look at. And so those of you that are still getting it, those of you that have it, you're on page two, you're under D, just war principles. What standards have been developed over the years to help decide if a war, if going to war in a specific situation is right? And the first one is just cause. Those of you that are getting your notes, you'll get it in just a minute. Just cause. Is the reason for going to war morally right, such as a defense of a nation? I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on that one. I think that's pretty much established. If it's to defend a nation, is that just cause? Uh, if a nation's under attack, is that just cause? If the nation is under threat of attack, um, is that just cause? We'll even talk about preemptive, preemptive stuff in just a moment. Um, is it just cause? Here's a verse I want to read. Uh, it's, it's Revelation 19:11. It says, when I, when I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, the, the premise of that verse, as you know, of course, this is Christ that's coming. And, uh, but it says he makes war based on righteousness and justice. What's a just cause? Is there a morally right reason for any nation to defend themselves or go into war? Is there any right, is it a right reason? Uh, number two, uh, competent authority. Competent authority. Has the war been declared by proper authority within the nation? So in other words, I can't, you know, I can't just decide that I'm gonna go invade Grenada get a bunch of guys and say, man, Grenada's a small country. We got about 300 men in the church. I think we can take it, you know? No, that, I, I can't just decide that I'm just gonna go take a group of guys and we gonna take over a country. It has to be declared by proper authority within the nation. Again, and even from the U.S. side, I know now that's a big debate on what actions are considered war and what needs to be taken to Congress, et cetera. But, uh, but the bigger picture is those of authority that's much higher than us got to make that decision. Number three, comparative justice. Is it clear that the actions of the enemy is morally wrong and the motives and actions of one's own nation to go to war in comparison is morally right? So if, 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 if the enemy has done something that's morally wrong and our desire to go retaliate against that nation or to take justice on that nation in comparison is morally right. So if, um, I don't know, if, if Mexico shot down that white balloon that you see hanging in the air over the desert, I don't think that's enough reason to go bomb San Luis, you know, if they shot that down. But if Iran shoots our ships, mm, thought I'd just throw that in there. All right, so is so you know, compare that and, and what would, would make that just comparison. Number four, right intention is the purpose of going to war is to protect justice and righteousness rather than pillage and destroy another nation. Again, I think that's um, rather clear. If, if a nation, another nation just wants to go in and destroy, and again, there's, there's, uh, there's verses there that you can look at, and some of these will break down a little further. Uh, yeah, so right intention. Number five, last resort. I like this one. Have all other reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? Can this be resolved another way? Again, being a peacemaker, again, uh, as far as it depends on you, living peaceably uh, with your neighbors. Last resort. Number six, probability of a success. 
Is there a reasonable expectation that the war can be won? And that verse in Luke 14 is the one about counting the costs. Actually, let's go to that. Let's look at Luke 14 because, you know, there's actually a few principles in here that I think that we as Christians can learn from a lot of positions and a lot of standpoints. And I may say a few things on that in just a moment. Um, Luke 14, and I think I want to, I want to start in verse number 25. And for a moment here, it's going to seem like that this has nothing to do with the lesson, but I want you to hear this. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, my, this is all in context. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Now, I want to go back now to 25 after hearing, after you hearing that verse in 28. And I want you to notice the emphasis of what Jesus is saying on all of this. The emphasis on all of this is counting the cost. What is the end objective that you're able to deal with? What's the end objective that you are, uh, that you're committed to finishing or getting to the end? Now, when he said this in context of father and mother and brother and sister, now I think you know that the word hate there doesn't mean hate that we carry out in an English vernacular. That, that you know, you, don't, you come to CTC one day, you give your life to Jesus, you go home and you tell your family, hey, I gave my life to Jesus. And they say, oh, wow, you gave your life to Jesus. Why do you want to be one of those Christians? Well, because I hate you. No, I don't, you know, it doesn't mean hate uh, in that manner. But what it does mean, and here's where, uh, here's where discipleship in a whole lot of ways, I think for the Christian church has gotten really weak. And that's this, we don't hold people down to the fire of what it means to truly be a disciple. And what it means to be truly, truly be a disciple might mean you will have people who no longer like you, want to be around you, want to associate with you, and you got to be willing to, to count the cost of the emotional and mental pain of no longer being part of the reindeer games. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but I kind of like that. <laughs> but you, you, you got to be able to count the cost. And some of you here that have come from a background of Catholicism, you know what it's like because some folks will almost absolutely own you. Now listen, those kinds of things can have an effect on people if you don't recognize, when I give my life to the Lord, here is the cost I'm counting. What is the most valuable thing that I'm gonna embrace and hold on to, to the end? What's the cost of that? What might you lose? What might you not be able to be part of? Counting the cost. So it starts there with discipleship. Talks about bearing the cross. Uh, which of you desire to, to build a tower? So now here, if you don't mind, can I just say something? If you don't mind me just giving a, just a little bit of a principle on life. Before you buy the car, count how much the, the interest is and the insurance and the maintenance and all the stuff to go with it. Okay, yes. You can pay the payment because they told you it was only going to be $235 a month. But you add on insurance and you add on everything else and this and this and that. And then folks get in financial trouble because why? They didn't count the cost of what they invested in. Now, let me tell you this. America, most folks in America are not in financial trouble because they don't have enough money or they don't make enough money. Most folks in America in financial trouble because they spend more than they make. I know, now y'all saying this ain't got nothing to do with counting the, what we didn't went from getting Saddam Hussein to messing with Alexander Ford. Yeah, I got you. But, but, it, but it's, it's, it's a fact. It's, 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 it's counting, looking, looking at what is the cost of this. What's the cost of giving my life to Jesus? What's the cost here of uh, building that tower? So, the, so he says, no man builds a tower. He doesn't start building something and then the shame of it 
because he can't finish it. Then he goes on to say this. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse number 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And so that was the point of the, of the probability of success. Measuring out, are we able to take this on? Of course, again, on a, on a national level, that's where other nations may ally and come together and, and et cetera. But wise people will look at the probability uh, of, the, of the success. Number seven proportionately of, did I say that right? Proportionality of projected results. Will the good results that come from a victory in the war be significantly greater than the harm and loss that will inevitably come with pursuing war? Uh, what, what, would be, what would be the end of it? Will the good that comes uh, be greater than, much greater than the harm or the loss that might be left behind? And number eight, uh, the right spirit. Maybe I, um, yeah, the right spirit. Let's look at Psalm 6830. Psalm 6830. Because this verse really is a good one. Is, is the war, is it, are you going into something, if you're not going into it with reluctance, if you're not going into it with some, with, with just a, some, a bit of sorrow, you might come pretty close to delighting uh, in war. And I just, um, I just don't think it's, it's just that kind of mindset that pleases the Lord at all. Verse, verse number 30 of Psalm 68, rebuke the beasts that, that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tri tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. And so... Uh, the, the, the scripture is, is just saying that's not something that anybody should delight in. And, uh, and, I, and I do. I think obviously all, all things need to be measured out in a, in, a, in a good manner and looked at in a good manner. And, uh, and I do think it's wise to make a determination um, of what, what it's going to uh, not only the what it may cost us to go, but what about the you know, the losses that may take place in another, in another thing. And, and again, certainly not trying to give any plugs politically, but I, I celebrated when President Trump did not make the attack in Iran. I thought it was wise uh, for him to say, you know, 150 people dying is not worth what took place uh, in that. And I think that's wise to, to do that kind of thing. Now, let me... Let me say this. I have a note in there about preemptive strikes. And, uh, and again, this, this is Tyrone Jones here. So uh, you can take it for however you want. Though this list does not directly speak to preemptive strikes, I personally believe that if overwhelming evidence that Nation B is going to launch an attack on me, Nation A, that Nation A can justify a preemptive attack on Nation B according to the criteria above, that will be enacted and assessed by the list below, and we'll look at that. So, um, in other words, what I'm saying is if you know uh, something is going to take place, you got all the evidence that something is going to take place, I don't think you need to wait for something to take place before you, before you react. And again, uh, that's out of the book of Jones. <laughs> book of Jones. All right, E, uh, there's, there's and, I, and I think, honestly, I got this same list initially from um, the same reading I was doing from the, from the guy named Heimbach. Uh, and I think he had more, but I, I, I got, there's four of these that I thought was good. How should a just war be fought? Uh, proportionate, proportionality and use of force can no greater destruction be caused than is needed to win the war. I do want to turn to Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20. No greater destruction done than to win the war. Uh, in other words, if you can, you know, I think it's the difference on, and everybody will say, you know, when you see this on TV, you get a ooh. When a boxer punches a guy and he's on his way down and then the boxer hits him again, just to make sure that, you know, we all say, oh, you know, you didn't need to do that. I think it's the same mindset uh, when it comes to this. Just if you do what you gotta do and you don't need to do more than that. So verse 10, 
when you draw near, this is Deuteronomy 20, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. So in other words, what he's saying is if you come up against a nation and they know that you're, you're coming in for whatever reason, this is the nation of Israel when they were going through the track and the Lord had gave them authority to do whatever they needed to do on their way. He says, if you get to a place, you get to a city and, and, and they don't wanna resist it and, and, and they let you in, then no need of going in there destroying them. You just, you just make them your own. And uh, in this case, he uses the term forced labor. So they either worked with them either in, in the city or, or as they went out to battle, but there was no need of, of killing them. And see, here's the thing. When you look at, the, when you look at Jericho, um, although the Lord knew this, but the king of Jericho was determined to try to not to let them in. And so God fixed that. He, the walls just, okay, we don't even need to fight. Just blow some horns. We'll just take it down. And then they went in and took, took the whole city. But the command was, uh, if, if they let you in, just, you don't need to go in there and just pillage and, and destroy. So be wise about that. Two, discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. In so far as, as it is feasible in the successful pursuit of a ward, of a war, sorry, that D should not be there, of a war, is adequate care being taken to prevent harm to non-combatants? And we talked about that just a moment ago. Um, what can be done so that as least as possible, civilians, those that are not a part of it, will be, will be harmed? That, that there is never, it's never um, foolproof that will happen. What happens in war oftentimes, of course, is, is innocent gets caught up in, 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 in the mess. And, th and that's because they're subject to the decisions of those that are above them making those decisions. And so they end up in the same situations. That's why it's so important for us as head of households to make sure we don't make decisions that cause everybody else that we're responsible to to have to suffer to that kind of decision and action. Y'all follow me on that? And so, so he said, you know, just, you know, discriminate as much, as much as, as, as you can. I got a side note there. Conquest of Canaan was unique in Israel's history and was a short foreshadowing of final judgment. As such, it was familiar, similar to the flood where the Lord sent the flood and destroyed everyone. Same with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So therefore, rules were total destruction, different from every other war. So there's unique cases where the Lord is trying to make a distinction of the final judgment upon the earth. And in those cases, the flood was one, Sodom and Gomorrah was another, where the Lord, every, you know, that everything was, was, um, was lost or destroyed. And you'll see that in some of the conquests of some of the things you're reading uh, in your daily, daily reading. It was a purpose for that. Number three, avoidance of evil means. Will captured or defeated enemies be treated with justice and compassion? And are one's own soldiers being treated justly in captivity? So that works both ways. Uh, and again, those of you, I know those of you that, in, that are in the U.S. that have, uh, I don't know what all the different codes are, but, uh, but there's rules to war. You don't, you don't, when you capture people, you don't mistreat them. Uh, there, we got cases now from the U.S. Where, where it's being questioned whether some people was mistreated when they were under captivity. And again, of course, there's probably a whole lot more to those stories than we see on TV and the media and, and what really happened. But we, we don't mistreat people. Remember, the, the heart of this uh, is, is, is not to exercise brute force. It's to accomplish a particular task that seems right and just. And at the same time, of course, we want people that, are, that have been captive um, and our losses to be treated with the same, uh, you, um, in a humane manner. Number four, good faith. Is there a genuine desire for restoration of peace and eventually living in harmony with the attacking nation? Is, is that the end goal? Is the end goal for us to be at a place in where countries can live together and uh, not have this hostility against one another? We know greed plays a place in that, but, but from our standpoint, if we, if we're a nation, I guess I can talk, if I was a president, that would be the, the, the goal and objective. 
Now, what about the responsibility of Christians? This one's a little bit more tested, and you'll see where I'm honest about what I don't know. But because I don't, I never served in the military, I don't know a whole lot about conscientious objectors. Somebody in here may want to explain it. But, but I'm going to share with you what I believe is right for someone that's a Christian. Uh, if, you're in, if you're in the military and you've committed to being in the military, then you know there's a possibility that you, you're going to go fight. I mean, you just know that. Now, this used to be a statement, I'm not sure if it still is, that every Marine is a basic rice, rifleman. Is that still the, still the line? And so, so you know there's a possibility no matter what you sign up for. You can sign up to be, you know, the pot washer, but you know if you're in the military, there is a possibility that you will be, that you could be fighting. And so if war is clearly right, fighting to de defend one's country is not morally wrong, but necessary. And, and I totally believe that. It's necessary. You committed to that. Uh, you're, you're serving your country. You committed to serve your country. And, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's morally right for you to uh, do as you're assigned to do if, if it's certainly seemed to be deemed to be a right fight. Uh, not just morally neutral, but morally good. Uh, B, uh, in that case, what attitude should a Christian have in combat? And again, I know it seems like a, di uh, a dichotomy, but it's a fact. I think we all can have a sorrowful evil, even godly anger against evil. I think we can have a, uh, a sorrow when people do wrong. Uh, I think everyone in the, in the United States of America, when, when we had to attack on the 9-11, I think everybody should have got angry. Everybody should have got angry that we got attacked by foreign entities. Uh, um, so here's, here's the attitude that we should have. Um, we're, we're always for goodness, always for faithfulness, always for self-control. And I, I hope that you've got out of me the last three nights. You can still carry out what's right and still not surrender those spiritual postures and positions. And obviously at the same time, uh, have love for enemies. David, his son Absalom, and that's the example I got here, his son Absalom was definitely an enemy of his. Unfortunately, it's a tragic story. And David weeped. As a matter of fact, he's, he, wanted, he wanted the group that had rebelled against him, he wanted them taken, but he wanted his son's life spared. And, uh, and uh, as you know, he weeped after his son was killed. So there's a love for enemy. But I want to I wanna read something that's actually kind of dear to me, and that's um, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural, inaugural address. Some of you might have heard this. It, it won't take me long to read it. It's not very long. But, you know, most of you know the, uh, the, the, the Civil War started in April of 61, and it ended in April of 65. And, uh, of course, Abraham Lincoln was the, was the president um, during those four years. He had was president when the war started and was president right when the war ended. He gave this address uh, in March, on March 5th. The actual end of the Civil War, I, I, uh, I don't know the exact date that Lee surrendered. Um, I know the war was declared, was it April 9th? Is that the day he actually surrendered? Okay. And so uh, April 9th was the end of it. But, but listen to this. Now, mind you, he had, he had to take on the responsibility of leading a country that had become divided. And, and, and one of the things I do want to note, if the Civil War, as, as, as terrible as it is, and as bloody as it was, if the Civil War had not taken place, slavery may not have come to an end. As bad as that was, but slavery may not have come to an end if it wasn't for the Civil War for the Civil War. And so he had, to, he had to try to bring the country back together. And there was still animosity. Mind you, this is March. The war is actually not over, but it's, it's pretty much projected that the South is, is defeated or going to be defeated. Um, they actually already are defeated, just hadn't surrendered. And so he, he, has to, he has the task of trying to bring the country together. Remember, there's, whole, there's bloodshed, um, you know, places like Maryland. Some of you, some of you that don't 
uh, know this, places like Maryland, Maryland was one of those places, depending on, you could, you could determine whether you were in the North or the South. So places like Maryland, brothers were actually fighting against each other because they, one, some chose the North, some chose the South. Uh, and if you ever want to know some good stuff, first of all, go to Gettysburg. The other thing, go to Gettysburg during a time where either me or Gabe is doing some of the leadership teaching there and you'll learn a whole, whole lot. Uh, that's a shameless plug, sorry. But, um, but Lincoln had the, he had the task of trying to mend those wounds and he started it by this speech. But I want you to listen to the words. He says, fellow countrymen, at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Then a statement, somewhat, somewhat in detail, of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper. Now, at the expiration of four years, during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest, which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation, because again, it lasted another month, even though the South was pretty defeated. Um, I better go back to that line. And engrosses the energies of the nation. Little that is new could be presented. The progress of our arms, upon which all else chiefly depends, is well known to the public as to myself. And it is, I trust, reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all, with high hope for the future, no prediction in regard to what it is ventured. So he's having high hopes that all this is going to be done, but uh, can't give a prediction on what's going to happen next. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, because he spoke right before the war got started. Uh, on the occasion of corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was, somehow, the cause of the war, to strengthen perpetuate and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the union, even by war. While the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Just, just for a little background, what Lincoln is saying here is the government's position was trying to establish that slavery goes no further than what it has already where there were some who were wanting slavery to go on beyond, continue to perpetuate, and, and et cetera. So they couldn't come to any agreement. Neither party expect, and let me just say this, just so nobody gets twisted. The, the, the position of those of the South, for those that was leaders that spoke for the South, they would never tell you this was about us having slaves they would say it was about states' rights. And literally, it was. Figuratively, it was about slavery. You guys follow me? Literally, it was. If a state can say, if Virginia could say, we got the right to do whatever we want, then the North can't tell us we can't have slaves. But, but they're not gonna say, we wanna fight this, we, wanna, we want this war to happen because we want our slaves. We want this war to happen because we want states' rights. Y'all follow? Okay. Neither party, you didn't think he was going to be in a civics class today, did you? Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each, each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. 
both read, and the rest of this is where I was going with this, both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through this appointed time, he now wills to remove and that he gives both to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers and the living God always ascribe to him? Now he's appealing to the people. Battle has been fought. War has been done. All kinds of stuff we've said and done against each other. But now the same God that you were praying to in his providence, this is where it's headed. Now call on those same attributes to work in our life. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, talking about the slaves, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so, it, so still it must be said. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether with malice toward none, with clarity for all, with firmness in the right. As God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves with all the nations." Now, I read that because here is what his appeal and his call was. We fought, we've battled, we've done war, north and south, but we got to bind wounds. Our job now is to, to be loving, show love, to be kind. All of those things, the same principles, if we were to bomb Japan, do what we can to make Japan better. You, you guys follow me. That was the call that he was making and, and the the... For, for us as a people, even though we don't like the travesties of war. All right, um, so that's war, uh, just war, et cetera. Uh, here's some responses I have because I shared earlier there's some Christian uh, pacifists, people who are absolutely nonviolent, and I don't think it'll take me too long to hit these. Some we may talk about a little more, but uh, their arguments are some of the things we already talked about with self-defense. Jesus said, turn the other cheek, uh, to love your neighbor. Uh, Jesus didn't use force to advance his kingdom, which he did. He didn't, sorry, he did not, you're right. But this is not about a, the kingdom of God. This is about a nation. And then the use of military force shows a lack of trust in God. So they would say that the use of military force uh, again, would show the lack of trust in God. And I think we dealt with that in self-defense, um, that um, you got all rights to defend yourself. Your ultimate trust, just like, just like we have money, need money, uh, have to operate with money, we don't trust in money. You may have a weapon, know how to operate a weapon, doesn't mean you absolutely trust in that weapon. Ultimately, your trust, your trust is in God. You can have money and go broke, you can have a gun and get shot. So your ultimate trust is in God. Here's the, here's the responses, I think, to each of those. Um, uh, pacifism uh, fails to recognize that Matthew 5.38 about turning the other cheek is addressed to individuals, not to a government. Uh, number two, it fails to see that scripture itself views love for neighbor as consistent with killing in war. And again, those verses is there. Both love and war are commanded in the Old Testament. Uh, God himself sent people out to war. I don't think he would have people do something that he was, he was against. Love for neighbor uh, near at hand requires that I protect him from the aggressor. If I love my neighbor, 
then I'm gonna protect that person also. Uh, Jesus is pure love and he's gonna come back in judgment and he's gonna come back in force. And so, so that character and nature there is rather, rather clear. The third point there, it fails to recognize that that Christian who fights in just war is God's servant doing the good that God has authorized him to do. So someone that's in the military serving their country uh, in a right manner is doing what God has commissioned them to do. And number four, um, pacifism is inconsistent in saying only unbelievers should serve in government as soldiers and, uh, or police. Um, and I got the points there. No commands in scripture pertaining to moral conduct are for believers only. Um, if, if the rule is right for one, then it's right for the other. It just, it just, it's just a weak argument. And uh, we have no warrant to trust in God for things different from what his word teaches, as Romans 13, 1 teaches, and God authorizes government to use deadly force. All right, I have a quote here on top of page four. This is on the top of my page four. And let me read these quotes. We're doing pretty good on time. Uh, this is John Jefferson Davis. I think I noted him at the bottom as one of the other uh, textbooks that I use for my study on this. In the pacifist understanding, if one finds oneself in a situation in which it seems impossible to preserve both the values of justice and nonviolence, then one chooses nonviolence, even at the price of allowing great injustices to be perpetrated perpetrated upon oneself and innocent third parties. I love that quote. And I, I, let me just say it in this vernacular. If I'm a pacifist and I know Don is beating up on Mary and I got to choose on what's just or being nonviolent, if I choose to be nonviolent, then I allow an injustice to take place. You guys following that? You, 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 just, it, you just cannot be a pacifist and follow the line of scripture in what's right concerning justice and supporting the weak, loving your neighbor, etc. That makes sense to everybody? All right. So on a personal note, I think I already dealt with this. Uh, even though war is a big atrocity, um, um, even with my limited learning, reading on the attack of Pearl Harbor, the invasion of Hitler's Nazi Germany, and the Civil War, in all three cases, the impending result for us would not have been stopped without war. And in the case for the last, without Civil War, we'd probably still have slavery. So certainly we know um, all of those cases, Nazi Germany, etc. So that's my, that's my position on war. And I pray that you see that to be biblical. And again, how you take that is up to you.